In today's episode, we open up the book of Mark, this time to chapter 8, verses 22 through chapter 9, verse 1. Blindness gives way to sight and insight as Jesus restores a man's vision. Then, when Peter correctly confesses Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus foretells of his impending suffering and death before promising that they would, some of them, see the kingdom of God come in power. Then, through miraculous healing and pointed questioning and prophetic revelations, Jesus is revealing his divine nature and preparing his followers for the path ahead. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, November 8th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church here in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. And we're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 1-800-730-2727, or you can email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a Facebook message. I'll try to get your question or comment out in the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest for this morning, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Welcome back to the program, brother. Yeah, good morning. Yes, it's uh, it's good to be back, and uh, pretty excited about dig- digging into this portion of Mark here today with you. And uh, yeah, all is going well here at Zion in Fort Myers, and we're already kind of going into season. People have already started seeing snow up north, so they start flying right. down here. And uh, so we've got more traffic starting up again, and it'll continue right on into uh, just after Easter, it'll start to let up again. So it's that time of year. Yeah, I've always been on this side of the snowbird phenomenon. You're on the opposite side of it. So things tend to grow a little bit during the colder months up here. Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, I remember that when I was a pastor back in Minnesota, too. The, we, we were kind of on the opposite end of all of that, uh, where the members would go away for for several months uh, at a time and then come back home when it when the weather, when everything thawed out, basically. You know, that's pretty much how that worked. Well, we do have an interesting text for today as we finish up Mark chapter 8. Jesus heals a blind man, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. So I I just really want to get into it. So why don't we go ahead and begin, uh, lead us with an opening prayer, please. Dear God, we give you thanks for the very lives that you have given to each and every one of us. They are so intricate, everything that you have given to us the five senses that we get to use in order to uh, enjoy all that you have created in this world. Today we learn of a blind man. We learn that that blindness is also connected to the blindness that we have in not always knowing and understanding who you truly are as our Lord and our God, the one who has come to save. As we make our way through these words this day, we pray that you would bless us by the power of your Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our faith and in our understanding of you and embrace all that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose precious name we ask for your blessing upon our time this day. Amen. Amen. Well, our text for today is really, we have to understand the context in which it happens. And our guest yesterday brought that up because we're with Jesus and he has just fed the 4,000 
Then the Pharisees demand a sign, and then uh, Jesus warns his own disciples who are kind of wondering, well, wait a minute, we only have one loaf of bread left. He warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus is really encountering people who are spiritually blind and hungry. He feeds them uh, physical food. Of course, he's also showing them that he is God who can take care of their spiritual needs. And then we come to a literal blind man, which I, I guess is, is is an amazing ability then for Jesus to point to this blind man and, and really teach now about spiritual blindness. But uh, what are some other things that people should know as we go into this text before we read any? Well, I think, you know, here you have the Pharisees who are demanding a sign. They want to make sure that this is truly the one who was sent. You know, you're, you're, you're making claims here. Um, they want a sign from heaven uh, about, you know, who he says he is. And he's going to actually ask that question of his own disciples, because that is something that they're, you know, they were struggling with, the Pharisees, all, all along, all the way through, you know, not wondering why has God not uh, informed us or sent us uh, a telegram or something to inform us that, indeed, uh, we have no prophet that says that you're coming, because they miss, they miss the prophet that God actually does send, who was crying in the wilderness and actually preparing the way for, for Jesus. And so, because it wasn't brought to the attention directly to those at the very top, which, in, interestingly enough, was, because they were present there, too, as as John the Baptist was ushering Christ in, but uh, they're missing it. They're blind. They can't see. They're they're starving for the truth, and they're just not they're not getting it. They're blind and they can't see. And and we come across this blind man. Let's look at that. Um, we're going to be in chapter eight, verse twenty-two. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, and he said, Do not even enter. The village. All right, so let's stop there at the end of verse 26. So we have a blind man. It's very similar to um, Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus, which we're going to hear about in a couple of chapters. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we have right here Jesus doing this miracle. Uh, some people have made a lot of, of, of hay over the fact that it seems to take Jesus two times to do it. So I hope you talk about that too. But, but take <laughs> us through this. Take us through this. Yeah, it didn't take the first time, so he had to try it again. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I've heard that preached, and I can't imagine why, but it's, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is out there. Yeah, so um, first of all, I mean, we're, we're in an, a part, I don't know uh, how many of our uh, listeners actually have had the opportunity to be over there in the Holy Land to know kind of where this is all taking place, but it's on the north side there of, of um, the Sea of Galilee, and you've got... Uh, Every time that I read this this portion, this this story, I'm just really intrigued uh, by the fact that the blind man asked Jesus to touch him, 
And of course, everybody knows that he means to touch him in a way that'll bring healing to his sight. But but you know, the first touch is in verse 23 there. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand mm. and led him out of the village. And I that always intrigues me because here he's already touching this man immediately by taking hold of his hand. And I'm just thinking of what this looks like, you know, because Jesus is leading him. He has to because the man's blind. He's leading him out of the village. And it doesn't even say, you know, that he's, that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't give the mechanics of what he does. It just says, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Um, and, and, and that, in itself is just very powerful. The man's asking for healing by basically asking him to touch him, and that touch comes immediately. Uh, and Jesus, uh, of course, um, lays his hands on him. And and it is interesting, you know, why why uh, why didn't he? Why wasn't he healed absolutely immediately? Um, you know. I've read through some of the commentaries on this, and one of the uh, commentators had made the comment that maybe this is a sign that this man had actually been able to see at one time. You know, because what 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 could he see as far as a full size tree walking around? You know, a, how would he even know what trees look like? Of course, we would say that you know smaller trees are easy for him to see with his hands, right? I mean, he'd be able to know what a tree is. But uh, this is interesting that. Um, he has this description of trees, you know, walking. And uh, and you've asked me, uh, why does he have to do it a second time to open his eyes? He was restored. You know, that's an unanswered question. We don't, we don't know that fully. Um, I don't recall ever reading anything about why uh, he he took a second time to do that, to lay his eyes on him again for him to restore his sight but the point of the story is that he does see everything, and the word is there clearly, absolutely. He's got perfect sight back if he had lost it at one time. Because we really don't know if he uh, had lost it young as a young man or recently. And we really don't know. But we do know that his sight was fully restored, and that's the point of this this particular healing Um and then, of course, uh, you know that last that last part of the story. Uh, do not even enter the village. We know that Christ at times told crowds of people that witnessed some of his miracles and his healings not to not to go and spread it around because um, there's an element there of controlling just how quickly uh, things were going to progress before. Um, you know, before he would be on trial and, and of course, uh, go to the cross for our sake. Well, I'm thinking about some of the things that you've been saying, uh, especially really going back to the top when you said, yeah, he, he asked him, begged him really to touch him. And you pointed out rightly so that in verse 23, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And as you were describing this, you reminded me that, yeah, of course, he has to be let out. He might be going away that he doesn't hasn't been before. Um, Jesus, he is trusting this Jesus. He is putting his hope in this Jesus that he will heal him of his blindness. He's putting his faith in Jesus that he has the ability to do it. And he is uh, trusting in Jesus because who knows this Jesus guy, if he's a if he's kind of a con artist, he might be taking the guy out behind the village to rob him or something. So he has right. to follow Jesus, and 
I think there is I, grammatically, it leaves it open and maybe I'm wrong. You guys can write me or call in if you think I'm wrong and that's okay. But I, I, I think grammatically, it doesn't tell us when the miracle occurred. I mean, he took the blind mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. He could have been healed at that point. But then it says he spit on his eyes and he laid his hands on him and he said, do you see anything? Well, it doesn't mean that he's checking to see if he get it. Perhaps, perhaps that just means he hasn't done the miracle yet and he wants to get a baseline. Like what, what is it you actually can see? So perhaps his blindness was such that he could kind of make out a giant tree but nothing else. Uh, and then he lays his hands on him and it says again, uh, which is really the third time as you pointed out, and this time his sight is restored clearly. So I agree with you wholeheartedly in the point, which is – he restores and he now sees everything clearly, but it's kind of interesting to try to picture this in your head. And I think we could read it a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another interesting another interesting uh, thought about this particular text too is that when he took him out of the village, it's that very village that he says, "Don't even go back, <laughs> don't right, even go right. there," because this is the probably the village where he was begging, you know, all the time, and. I, I think to myself, you know, if, if, if I was this man and Jesus healed me, and I can see clearly now, what's the first thing I want to do? <laughs> I want to go and tell everybody, right? I want to go back into the village and say, look, look what, look what he's done. But Jesus is saying, no, no, don't do that. That just feels rough. <laughs> it just feels like that would be hard uh, to not want to go and tell everyone. And, 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 and it's been true of all of Jesus whenever he would tell people, you know, don't, don't um, uh, go and tell people uh, uh, about this. And yet people still did that too anyway. Of course. And, and this yeah. doesn't have any biblical basis for it, but I was also thinking, well, all right, let, let's take that same scenario you said. He's been begging in that town. Now he goes back and people see this guy who I thought he was blind. I've always known him as blind, just walking through town, telling everybody how he's not blind. The cynic in them, and perhaps the cynic in me, might say, well, you were conning me, and I've given you money, and I've helped you, and it turns out you were a, a con artist this whole time. So now there's a risk, of course, of the message spreading and Jesus being unable to do his work. But I think there's also the risk of people, frankly, just not believing him. So maybe, just maybe, there's another reason why Jesus doesn't want him to go back to the village. Just go home. Right, right. Well, moving on then, we see this man who has had physical blindness restored by Jesus, and now he sees everything clearly. Let's see if the disciples also see clearly, but this time in spiritual matters, starting with verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All right, that's the end of verse 30. So we, we get a, a truncated version, I suppose, or a different uh, situation maybe. I, I don't know how you want to look at it, but Jesus is asking his disciples who he is. Peter confesses on their behalf of who he really is. And then, of course, we have that famous, well, now, do, now go and tell no one, which is the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do today. But uh, right. let's, let's look at this a little more deeply, brother. Yeah, so, I mean, 
it's interesting. You know, Mark Mark has a tendency to just kind of just give the facts. You know, just give uh, the the some of the details of a lot of these stories, whereas you know the other gospel writers will add a little bit more to it. We we uh, know that this uh, this scene is also connected to the to the same uh, event that that Matt Matthew wrote about uh, in his gospel, and of course we know that uh, Peter actually goes a little further in his description of Christ as being the Son of the Living God. And um, but the but the point here is that when Jesus went to his disciples. It's interesting because you want you start to think Jesus is having this conversation because of what he's been the conversations he was he's been having with the Pharisees and with Herod you know he he probably is following up a bit on that um and and just in just trying to figure out are they getting it and you know are they still blind themselves as to who he really is so i I think this is really a um an interesting an interesting question, I think an interesting time when Jesus acts, is actually asking this. And I'm not sure about the chronology. I haven't looked into that of, of what these events are, that they're, they're strung together here. But um, And again, this is, a, this is a place, you know, here's, here's another description of the fact that they're now, you know, they're still moving along, and they go uh, to this another village in the villages in Caesarea Philippi, which is yet further north from the Sea of Galilee as well. But, um, yeah, so I, and it's interesting that they were also saying, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or one of the prophets. Um, you know, there was this, this understanding that um, maybe God would bring back uh, one of these powerhouse uh, prophets uh, to uh, usher in uh, the age when God will uh, make everything right. Uh, de- destroying their enemies, making uh, making his relationship right with them uh, together to be able to live forever uh, in peace. Well, I posed the question right before we you know read this, and that is that you know are are is Jesus looking at their own spiritual blindness, and he's doing a little bit of a test to see where they stand. It's it's beautiful to hear. Uh, Peter confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the Living God, as we hear elsewhere. But we also know that though his answer is right, all of their understanding of Jesus is still pretty cloudy. It's almost like that that first condition of the blind man. He could see, but not quite clearly. In fact, it seems that they continue to think that he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. We have mm-hmm. you know Jesus rebuking Peter of that uh, in well, in just a little bit here. But so right. we see here that uh, they, while they identify him correctly, their understanding of what that really means uh, still needs to be honed in a little bit. But to say you are the Christ is still an, an incredible confession. I'm not taking away from it because right. that would be blasphemy if, if if heard by, well, if it weren't true, I guess. That would be blasphemy. Right. Well, they see him as Messiah. They see him as the fulfillment of what the prophets had been saying. And and that that in itself is is important because... Um, you know, they, they're saying, well, you know, people are saying this about you, uh, that you are one of the prophets that are, that are coming to, to tell us of the Messiah or to be, uh, the one that God had already chosen and now has come back. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And then, but he's saying, no, who do you say that I am? And that's, that was the important question. 
Um, that's the that's the important question for any of us today that live in this world. You know, this is the this is the question that that everyone has to answer whether they know it or not. You know, every, this is a this is the question that uh, truly shows whether or not um, you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised, and that He is our Savior, and that we will uh, receive all the all the good eternal gifts that God has to give us. Of course, we know that on this side of the cross. But, um, yeah, there's a lot here. It's very packed. Well, that message of, but who do you say I am? You know, I think that's really important. You, you brought it up. We, we all must answer that question, and we have to answer it for ourselves. Uh, just to share a little bit of a story, when I was uh, studying for my doctorate, I went to Bethel Seminary and University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and there, we, I was joined, obviously, by lots of other different people studying for their doctorate in uh, – but they were from different traditions. And so I had um, you know, Methodists and Episcopalian, and there was a, a Presbyterians and a, a handful of Baptists, and so those different people. But I was the only Lutheran and uh, so at the time in my cohort. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I was talking with these folks, I, I always kind of felt like almost like the ambassador for Lutheranism. So they would we would talk theology, and we never tried to convert each other to anything other. We just did talk about our differences of beliefs. And so I would say things like, well, Lutherans believe, or we believe, or, or you know, the, the confessions confess, or, or you know, even the Bible right. says. Sure. And then one day they looked at me and they said, okay, well, you tell us what Lutherans believe. What do you believe? Mm-hmm. Now, for me, it seemed like a— a nonsense question. Well, I of course believe what our confessions teach, <laughs> but, sure, sure. but I still walked away going, you know, and, and their context is sometimes they don't actually teach in the same things as the church might officially confess. We try to do that, but yeah, I walked away going, you know what? I'm actually going to take that as a positive because, you know, we do have to make that confession on our own. It may be speaking the same and hopefully it is with Christians of old, but it's still you saying, who do you say that Jesus is? I always think about that when I hear this verse. Well, we and, and our confessions are solidly grounded on the Word of God, and this is what we believe that word to mean, and, to, and what we believe it means for us. And and whenever we're talking about it, um, you're right on. I mean, that's that is our confession, and that's this is what we believe. So when I say what I believe, what the confessions say, I believe what what. Uh, um, is taught uh, according to my church and our and what we believe together. Um, I'm believing in what the Word of God says to me. <laughs> that's and that's hard for people outside because they're like, well, you learned there were no Lutherans back in the early days, you know, of Christianity. So um, what about those folks? Are they not saved? And you know, you, you get all kinds of arguments uh, from people when you uh, use denominational language like that that uh, has something to do with doctrine and confession and, uh, you know, just using the, the name of your denomination, Lutheranism. Um, I'm very, I'm very uh, bold to let people know that, you know, my understanding of the Scripture is that of, that's taught by uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. You know, so we make sure that they understand this is where we come from, this is what we believe. We didn't make this up. This uh, is what we believe God is telling us in His Word. And that's really hard. You know, that's really hard for people to understand, though. 
Well, some people are loyal to their denomination or, you know, their synodical affiliation in our parlance. They're loyal to it because they just grew up in it and they're just loyal to it. Or they're loyal to the church because that's where they've always been or they like the programs. Mm -hmm. But all Christians, uh, no matter what affiliation you have, you should have your loyalty to the correct confession of the Bible. And you need to find a church that correctly professes it. You know, we in our confessions do that or attempt to do that at the very least, right? We, we make our confession, we make our stand, and I'm a Lutheran. I didn't grow up Lutheran, so I can easily say I'm a Lutheran because I believe that the confessions are, uh, you know, in concert with the, the Word of God. They're based on the Word of God, correct expositions of the Word of God. But for those who are just affiliated with their denomination because they've always been whatever, Baptist, Lutheran, mm-hmm. Methodist, whatever it is, then I think it's important that you take a few minutes and say, I need to find out what my church stands for, believes, teaches, and confesses, and then i got to make sure that that's with the Scriptures. And I trust that they'll find that our Lutheran confessions are, but still, it's a confession that you as an individual Christian have to make. Mm-hmm. Yep, well said. Well, I'll yeah, tell I mean, you what, we, 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 have, we, we go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I see we're at a break, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, we have a few minutes before the break, but I thought I'd just go ahead and throw it out a little bit early so we can think about what we've all been talking about, because we are going to shift gears a little bit, because Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, but the conversation is not over. From this confession, Jesus will now teach them about what has to happen, and frankly, Peter's having none of it. So despite his correct profession, Peter's still obstinate and spiritually blind to what God's mission is on earth. But you aren't, and if you are, you won't be here in a minute when we cover it. Folks, don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. The Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida, is my guest this morning. He's a regular contributor to the show. We're happy to have him, and we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. Now we're finishing up Chapter 8. Before we head back into our text, though, I just want to remind you again that if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, just reach out. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook. Send me a message. You can even call into the studio, 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or your comment out on the air. All right, Pastor, before the break, we were just sort of toying at the end of 
uh, Jesus asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers him that he is the Christ. Uh, but once again, that verse 30, let's look at that just again. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, we've talked about this many times on why Jesus is doing this, but I want to reflect for just a moment on how different it is today. It seems like people today, myself included, I'm afraid, are really good at not telling anyone about Jesus. In fact, <laughs> we need to be doing the opposite. Back then, right. they, they sort of couldn't help to go and tell people about Jesus. Uh, but what do you think about that, just sort of the irony behind that or anything else? Well, you know, it, it is ironic in the, in the sense that um, we actually hear Jesus say both. You know, he, he, there is a point. But look where Jesus is saying that. Where, where does Jesus finally say that after the work has been completed? You know, that then he's very powerful about getting his disciples, uh, getting the word out by sending the, the special gift of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and the church grows and all of that from there. I mean that was that was the point. That was the time. So I mean, there's there's a time and a place, and this is this time and place is not the place where Jesus wants this to be moving forward yet, because there is a timing in God's plan. We all know that you know Christ is uh, actually sacrificed on the day of the Paschal Lamb is sacrificed, and there's that's not by chance. That's by um, you know God being in control, Christ being in control, the situation and uh, moving things along at a certain pace. And so, you know, he, we, many of us believe that this is why he was doing that, uh, to make sure that, uh, indeed, um, that things are timed out. God, God knows all things, and even Christ would know uh, how, how to move things along in order to fulfill his Father's um, uh, plan for our salvation. Okay. With God existing outside of time, you know, we're the only ones that kind of get hung up about it, and, and, for, mm -hmm. and for good reason, of course, but it is important for us to remember that, you know, as you said, God's timing is perfect, and we're the ones who have to submit to that. Well, Jesus begins right. to say some things that are a little different than he's said before with verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, we're going to pause there. Uh, he's going to continue this thought, turning to the crowd, but... Even with this, for the first time in Mark anyway, Jesus is very openly and clearly predicting his suffering and death and his resurrection. He's going to keep doing this for the rest of the book. But here we have Jesus basically, again, for the first time, clearly telling him he's going to die. Peter's reaction is, is it surprising or is it not surprising? I actually haven't really decided. No, I mean, I mean, it, it appears that that, their hopes, their dreams, their expectations are shattered here when Jesus says this. This is not how they pictured Messiah and the Christ, like, where did this come from? This is not what we understand concerning the whole teaching of Messiah. And so, yeah, I, I mean, we can understand if we understand that's the perspective that they're coming from. That and, and they're not the only ones. I mean, 
crowds of people tried to make Jesus king. You know, they wanted to to uh, rally around him and and get this thing going, get this kingdom ushered in. And that's why um, this is so huge. This is almost the exact opposite of what they had anticipated was going to happen. And they were pretty excited about being on the right side in this situation, knowing that they were with their powerful king, their, their lord, the one who was going to, uh, to to usher in this whole new kingdom. And so Jesus comes, shatters that really, actually, uh, as he even speaks about the future and what's coming, um, that shocked them as well. They had such a picture painted in their heads from the prophets that was not uh, fully comprehended and understood. Just like we were talking about the blind men, there was still a lot of blindness here in what the reality of what God is going to do for them in Christ Jesus, and Jesus lays it out right there. And this had to be a shocker, you know, for, for them, all of them, all of the disciples. Well, when you talked about them being shocked and devastated, what also came to my mind was, you know, they're in the background, and I don't think we've seen that yet in Mark, but in the background, they're doing things like arguing over who's going to be the greatest in this new kingdom that's coming. Mm-hmm. So, they've got, I mean, they, they got all these expectations, they got all these plans, they've got it all figured out, and now yeah. Jesus says, well, here's what's really going to happen. And it's exactly. Like, they, they've already, wow. like, you know, mapped out their territory, I, you know, they've <laughs> already... Right. Ah, take their but, claim. <laughs> and and just taking their claim. But and and then Jesus, I mean, he takes him, you know, Peter took him aside and to rebuke him, began to rebuke him, it said. I what I think is fascinating about that. So, yes, it's unsurprising that they were devastated. This part surprises me because Peter in I, I assume the same really situation both confesses that he is the Christ and then dares in this moment to rebuke the Christ, which I you know, I, I is interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, you know, I look at that. You know, what does it mean that he rebukes him? You know, what does that look like? You know, I, I think in in, in today's, uh, you know, trying to still be respectful because you know Jesus is the Christ. He's the the one who's Messiah. You still be respectful. I can almost see Peter, you know, saying something like, um, you know, with all due respect. <laughs> That's just crazy, you know. I can't believe you're even saying this. I can, you know, what was what was coming out of his mouth at that point? It's not recorded, and and probably for a good reason. But um, you know, it's like this is this is not this is not how this is going to come down, you know. And, and Jesus is going well. Get behind me, Satan, because this is completely the opposite of what God's plan is. It's it's like it's flipping. Everything's flipping right here. And all of a sudden, Peter is being referred to as having the words of Satan coming out of his mouth at this point. And, and it's like, wow, that's not Peter. You know, that's even flipped over. So this whole thing has just kind of you know, flipped over on its head, and it's, it's, I'm sure this whole experience and this whole episode was absolutely devastating for Peter. Well, you know, and if we accept the, uh, the sorry, the Petrine in, you know, influence on Mark, then maybe that explains why we don't hear exactly what he said. You know, Peter's in the background <laughs> saying, Mark, Mark, don't put that in there. 
if, don't, don't include that. Obviously, I'm just joking. But the word here, Peter took him aside to rebuke him, um, epitemao, uh, which is usually rendered a rebuke, but it also can be rendered ordered or charged. It's this idea that there's a command, right? You know, Jesus mm-hmm. rebukes the wind and the waves, the stormy waters. It obeys him. So whether it's done with respect or even just what we might call an um, an excited utterance, right? He's just so surprised he doesn't know what he's saying. Either way, he's kind of telling Jesus his business, which is why Jesus turns around and rebukes him so strongly. Get behind me, Satan. Now, the word Satan here is uh, certainly what we call um, the devil. The word itself in the Greek is diabolos. Um, diabolos, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like a diabolos. Yeah, so it's like a, a, um, adversary, a slanderer, you know. So I guess what I'm asking here is the ESV authors capitalize Satan, so they're seeing it as, you know, Satan's influence, or at the very least, you know, it's a thing of Satan. Um, is Jesus calling him Satan, or is he just calling him an adversary? Have you looked into that at all, or do you have any opinion? I've, yeah, I've I've understood that that um, that word Satan there. I've, I've I've heard that too because yeah, we we know in the Greek that it is uh, that that you know it's it's more of the things things that are opposite of God that that wants to destroy what God wants to do. It's it's the um, how do you put that? It it's like the um, uh, I'm trying to figure this out here. Um, it's the refusal to accept God's plan is the opposite of embracing God's plan. So he wants to. Ref- he doesn't realize. I don't. I honestly don't think that he he understands because I don't think he would have ever said this. I that that he doesn't realize he's doing that very thing. You know, God that Jesus really brings us to to bear. Uh, just full blast by by saying saying it the way he does, because it it threatens uh, God's plan of salvation for uh, um, for what Jesus is trying to bring across. I mean, it's the exact opposite. That's what I'm saying. Everything's just kind of flipped over completely at this point. And I and I, I do like, you know, he's putting it out there. Jesus is making making it clear that he understands that you've got things on your mind <laughs> that do not mesh with what God's plans is. Your thoughts are, my, are, not my, are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. That all kind of comes to mind as well as you see this here, because the things of God is what matters, not the things of man, not what you think, but what God thinks. Absolutely. A quick correction, by the way. Uh, it, it actually is the the word uh, satanas um, in this, oh. not diabolos, uh, but it's the okay. same point. The same point is made. It's That's just a borrowed Aramaic term for the devil, folks, so it literally means adversary. So, But yeah, no, but the point remains the same, and that is that Jesus is attributing Peter's resistance to the work of Satan, which is, as our guest said, is, is, uh, is anything that opposes the things that God wants to happen to happen. And, and of course, while Satan himself, the, the figure Satan, he's a fallen angel. So he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. He has plenty of help, but I always think it's good to remind people that, you know, it doesn't have to be actively Satan entering Peter like he does Judas. Perhaps it's just a way of saying, you know, you are doing Satan's work by, res- by resisting me. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I think we have to be very careful of that because the whole idea of Satan made me do it. Well, Satan can only be in one place at one time. Really, we have enough sinful inclinations and concupiscence of our own. We don't really need Satan's help to do anything wrong. So I just think that's kind of interesting. Is Satan behind it? At the very least, yeah. in a very general way, very possibly in a direct way. But yeah, it's. I, I think Peter would have been horrified to hear that. Diabolos or Satanas, he would have been horrified to think that his Messiah is is calling him the the, the accuser, the adversary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think he's also um, showing that the ultimate blame is not directly just on Peter, but you know, the things that are in Peter's mind, you know, has it been manipulated uh, by the evil one in such a way that that Christ is identifying who the real enemy is here? Uh, that was That's another way in which I've, I've seen this, yeah. too. And I think that's also an excellent way and equally as valid, because it's, it all points to the fact that, you know, Peter here, you know, he's like, I'm up here shooting at the devil. If you're getting hit, Peter, you're sitting too close to him. And, that, and that's what's going on. You know, Peter is doing the work of the devil, whether it's by compulsion or by accident or by his own sinfulness, but Jesus warns him against that. Well, let's keep on going with verse 34, because Jesus keeps this thought going as he now calls the crowd to him to join his disciples. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who would ever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And that's going to be the end of our text. We'll pick up with verse 2 of chapter 9 tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow, as we deal with the transfiguration. All right, so back to our text, though. So he, he, he's he been talking just to the disciples. It's sort of in private when he calls Peter Satan, but now he's drawing the whole crowd up to him. And I'm very interested in what you have to say about this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right. I see two ways of looking at this. I think both are theologically correct, but I don't know that he means both. If anyone would come after me, he should deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. On the one hand, and I think the most common understanding is that this is all of us, right? If we're if we're following after Jesus, then we must deny ourselves and and follow him. But I've also heard this just on my own really in the sense that if there are other people coming up saying they're the Messiah, they have to deny that, take up their own cross and follow me. So, I'm interested mm-hmm. to hear how we might break that down for folks. Right. And I I you know, when you look here, you know, what does it mean to deny yourself? You know, what, you know, when you're looking at denying yourself, it's, it's speaking about the, the will. You know, you saw, you see the will of Peter and what he believes. You saw the will of, of uh, Jesus 
and and what Jesus wills to have happen because he needs to fulfill these things in order to bring salvation and then you have the will of satan in there i mean it, it, it's it's really the will what what is what what is the 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 goal of all of us you know what is the what is it that we believe what is it that we truly want to follow so are we are we going to follow our will christ's will so to so to follow Christ's will, we need to deny our will, what we think, what we believe. You know, Peter had it all messed up. Um, you know, you need to listen to God's word, and you need to follow Him, and that means taking up your cross. And of course, a lot of uh, a lot of comments on the cross. Basically, when you submit to following Christ, be ready for persecution. Be ready for the suffering that comes with that. It's it's it can it's it can be very rough and very difficult to um in the face of this world and what the world believes and what uh, Satan is trying to do to to um you know end that in the, in the in the lives of people. So yeah, there's a lot going on here and uh, uh it means to really imitate Christ, be like Christ, continue to have that kind of will uh, really is is denying ourselves. Indeed. And you know, this whole idea of well, you know, I I am who I am, and my own thoughts, and my I'm my own, I'm my own leader. I, I choose my own fate. I, I, however, people like to try to characterize their self autonomy. Oftentimes, that concept that the human wants to be in charge is what butts up against Jesus's call for us to surrender our own wills for His. You know, I think in history, some people have read this as. Well, I need to go live some sort of ascetic life out in the middle of nowhere. I have to give up any sort of resemblance of a joyful life and go and and, and be a hermit in the wilderness and just pray all day. And and that's certainly not what he's talking about. He's speaking, as you've been saying, about the fact that our will, our ways, like that of Peter's, is often contrary to the will of God. And if the two come into conflict, we have to surrender Ourself. We have to deny ourself. And even if that should cause us trials and tribulations, which it, he actually promises it will, then we have to take those up and we got to just do what Jesus said. Because as it says elsewhere in scripture, if, if, if they hated Christ, how much more we, his students, right? If, if they, they don't know us because they don't know him. I think that's really important for people to understand. But he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Uh, what does it mean, though, to lose one's life for the gospel's sake? And, and certainly this isn't suggesting that we're doing something in order to gain eternal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, uh, I think I understand your question in there. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> yeah, who who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels. So, you know, there's just all kinds of things that are running through my mind right now in in uh, in connection with all of what you're saying. And one part is that, you know, we're talking about what's in our hearts and in our minds as far as, you know, what is the will that we should be following? Our will or, you know, what we think should happen and just like what Peter thought, you know, what what he believed and all of that, or do we truly pursue that which is God's will, that that would become part of our mind and who we are and becoming imitators of Christ? I can't help but think of, like, in Philippians chapter 2, you know, uh, 
Paul is pushing that in that chapter to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only his own interests, but also the interests of others. And here comes the verse, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And it, it's saying to have a new mindset, not not what Curtis thinks, <laughs> you know, uh, the way it should be. But listen to what God is telling you. Listen to what uh, is true and real as far as what God's plan is for us. And um, let go of ourself, you know, deny ourself and and know that the only way that life is saved um, is through uh, losing our life and giving it up all over to God totally, um, losing the, the sinful, selfish side of our life that uh, just has its own plan, its own uh, its own understanding and mindset. When God wants us to have the mindset of His plan to save us uh, and, and what He's done for our sake. Another mindset that people struggle with in this life it comes to us from verse thirty-eight. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory. So Jesus, in two things, in two ways, pardon me, tells us that, A, I'm coming back, (laughs) so my mission's not done. Even though I said that I must suffer and die, I'm telling you, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> that Well, it means something, of course. It's part of his plan, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it doesn't stop his mission. In fact, it accomplishes his mission. But then he lets them know, but you can't be ashamed of me because this is God's will. Now, back then, they would have had, I, I think, a lot of reasons to be ashamed only in the sense that someone dying by crucifixion it really just marked them as the most heinous of criminals, even if it weren't true. And so Jesus's crucifixion was something of which the disciples constantly had to struggle with. I mean, they, they constantly had to face people who mocked them because their Messiah, their, their God, was killed on a Roman cross. What kind of God gets killed on a Roman cross? I think a lot of that shame, ashamedness, ashamedness, is that a word? I think that comes <laughs> from that cultural, that cultural mm-hmm. context. Today, though, people continue to be ashamed, not because the crucifixion is embarrassing, but, well, I guess I I don't know what. Maybe because people might, so many unbelievers don't like what we have to say. I don't know. But anyway, talk about that. It's a threat. You know, the truth is threatening to us. It's it's threatening to our sinful nature to begin with, you know, because we don't want to believe it. We want to believe that, um, you know, that we... Uh, have control of what we want to do with our lives. That's our will. That's our that's our full-fledged will is to, to live for self, you know, go for all the gusto you can, you know, live for number one in life. Um, and it, it actually, you know, um, offends people. I mean, that's what the truth does. It's offensive. It's, it, it's, it feels like someone else's will is trying to force my will to uh, to be like theirs, and in and in this sense, I mean that's what Christ is saying. That if you do uh, embrace the will of God, you will be blessed. You will have blessings that are not just in this world here, but but blessing beyond this world 
to eternal blessings as well, which the the, the adulterous and sinful generation can't see, because just the word adulterous and sin is 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 self. It's about self, you know, and and living life that way and having a mindset like that. But to um, to actually shed oneself of that and to try and deny ourself and and what our will and what our desires and our lust would be uh, is very much the opposite of uh, what God uh, has in store for those who truly want and, and desire to deny themselves on the basis of being changed by this very word of Christ. Well, then we move into, I think, a pretty difficult term, and we only have a couple of minutes to talk about it. But um, the, this, what he's saying here is, he's tru- he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That term, kingdom of God, we see it used often, but we don't, I, I, mean, I think I'm correct in saying, we don't really know exactly what he's talking about here, although we have some pretty good guesses. I don't know. Maybe you know exactly. How would you interpret this? Well, some well, someone would immediately say, "Oh, it's talking about heaven," you know, and, and, and just like a place, and that's it. But when we pray uh, in the Lord's prayer for His kingdom to come, we know that we are already talking about the kingdom of God now coming to us here in our hearts and minds. That uh, God's that God will come uh, to us in His Word and His gifts and His sacraments, but. Um, I've understood this verse uh, as being the kingdom of God when it says, after it has come with power. The power, of course, that we know in this instance would be the power that Christ demonstrated through his um, conquering of death on the cross and the power over death from the grave and his resurrection. And, of course, um, he 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 was he was mentioning that there's going to be some standing here today who will not taste death until they've seen this happen and and so a lot of times that this this verse is pointing to the power of God that was demonstrated in Christ Jesus um and of course all of these had seen that that would be, would have been there that, that day all the disciples anyway uh, with the exception of course of Judas but um you know not seeing it culminate all the way out and seeing that power revealed in what Christ had done. Well, that's where we'll have to leave it this morning. We're up against a, a time, so we will say thank you to the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Thanks, Pastor, for uh, well being on the show. Enjoy the warm weather. Enjoy all of our snowbirds who are coming down to you guys. Absolutely. It's always a joy, and yeah. If anybody's, any of the listeners are coming down here, just stop by Zion here at Fort Myers if you're in the area. That's right. I couldn't recommend it more. All right, folks, tomorrow we're going to open up chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. Uh, in his transfiguration, Jesus has an amazing and miraculous encounter with Moses and Elijah, revealing his glory. Later at the foot of the mountain, a desperate father asks Jesus to heal his demon-afflicted son after his disciples failed to. With compassion, Jesus rebukes the evil spirit. He heals the boy. But we're going to talk about that in a lot more. Again, that's tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.